cost. Got it. It's coming to you. Awesome. So, so that way the people online can hear your question. Thank you. Okay, go for it. Okay, so um, figures will not. I don't know if we're streaming yet, but I'm gonna. <laughs> okay, so I I know that there's a a difference between religious spirituality and philosophy, of course. Okay. But figures like uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas uh -huh. or Saint Alphonsus. And there's another one I think I'm missing, St. Albert, St. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bonaventure. These men, when you get into their writings, they, they almost sound like philosophers. Yeah. Is, is, there a, is, is there a thing as Christian philosophy? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Fantastic question. Yes, there absolutely is a thing, Christian philosophy. And so my son studies that. He's a, a philosopher, teaches at the seminary. Mm -hmm. and I teach theology and my son teaches philosophy. And, um, and some of the greatest theologians who are doctors of the church, like Thomas Aquinas, and St. Albert, St. Bonaventure, um, were also philosophers. They didn't, you know... Uh, Go all the way outside. Yeah, with they it, didn't with separate it. them. And so if you read um, Thomas Aquinas's great work, The Summa of Theology, he simply mixes together philosophy and theology to make wisdom, a wisdom um, that combines both. Okay. Um, Thank you. And so that's why um, at the seminary, so I teach at the Catholic seminary, they have to do two years of philosophy before they start theology, which is four years. Mm -hmm. um, because it's, um, philosophy is like a servant to theology in the sense that um, reason, so philosophy is thinking critically and reasonably about human experience in the world. And uh, when we have faith, we don't stop thinking, right? And we use, uh, so philosophers pose questions like, is there a God? And give reasons for that. They pose the question, are human beings free? What are the first principles of morality? And God reveals about those same things. It's like an intersection. Mm -hmm. Because I, I know, or at least I did, I had the tendency to separate them. Theology yeah. was just religion based and doctrine and dogma and philosophy was the free thinking, critical thinking. But it's, it's nice to see that there is a bridge between them yes. and you can study yeah. the works. Yeah, so reason and faith go together, right? Because it's the same God who made the world and our reason and who's revealed himself to us. And there's always a temptation, I think, for people of faith to kind of discount reason. And that's, uh, you find that more, um, you, you find it in Islam, you find it um, to a certain extent in the Protestant world, uh, the idea that you have to go by faith alone. Mm -hmm. So there are two dangers, rationalism, and that's go by reason alone, or fideism. And that's kind of the faith alone. So we don't want either one, but faith plus reason. So a nice balance. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there are different methods, though. So philosophy uses, uh, has to demonstrate something by reason alone, whereas theology 
demonstrates by way of revelation. Anybody else want to ask anything before we start? We've got... Want to read this one? So Father Povis had an emergency call. He'll be back in just a few moments. But if you do have a question, just ask for the and we'll throw it to you. That way, online, you can hear the questions, okay? All right. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Loving God, we give you thanks for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our great King, which we celebrate today. And as we gather here in your presence, enlighten our hearts and minds and open our hearts to hear your word in scripture and tradition and the catechism, then we come in greater knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, your church, and a deeper love of him who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. This army up to right Our topic for today and next week is the church. So it's obviously a big subject. And... Um, Especially, I think, in our city, I often appoint them to one of the things we want to look at is the claims of the Catholic Church as opposed to Protestant denominations or Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, it's a lot to say here. So today is the last Sunday of the liturgical year. And so the lit what do I mean by that? Then liturgy. So liturgy is the public prayer of the church. And we encounter it most of all in the Mass, in Sunday Mass. And so um, every Sunday in the um, church year is part of a, a yearly cycle. And we start every liturgical year next Sunday with the first Sunday of Advent. Advent's a time of preparation for Christmas. Um, and then um, 
There's also what we call ordinary time. And, and then, um, so there's, there'll be Advent, Christmas season, ordinary time, Lent, Easter season, ordinary time. And so today's the last Sunday, and so the church ends her liturgical year with um, focusing where she begins with, so the church year begins with looking forward to baby Jesus, the, infant, the birth of Jesus. The church year ends with Christ the King of the universe. And Christ, so Christ is king. He's king because he's God, but he's also king through conquest. And that conquest is of Satan, sin and death. And he reigns unlike other kings who reign for a time, or other presidents, and Jesus reigns forever because he rose never to die again, right? Having destroyed death. And so the church remembers that today. Christ, the king of the universe. And if he's a king, he's got to have a kingdom, right? Every king has a kingdom. All right, what's Christ's kingdom? It's the church, right? So he's king over a kingdom, which he calls the kingdom of God. And much of what he did during his public teaching was speaking about the kingdom of God. And he then, he instituted sacraments for his kingdom. Baptism, the Eucharist. He um, called 12 apostles to govern his kingdom right after his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so his kingdom continues after him on earth, but also in heaven. Right? And so the church is not just what we see on earth, nor just what's in heaven, but both at the same time. The church encompasses time and eternity. Right, so this is Jesus' kingdom that we want to think about in this class and next class. So the word itself, church, um, comes from the um, Hebrew idea of a congregation calling together. So Moses, when he led the people out of Egypt, he led them um, to Mount Sinai where they were gathered together right, in worship and prayer to receive the covenant. So that's the meaning of the word church congregation of the faithful to worship God. Right? So that's what the church is. The people God calls and gathers, right? so the Old Testament from Egypt, but us gathers from all nations, right? from every part of the world, to form an assembly um, who become one, and we'll talk about how the church is one, through faith and, and sacraments. Right, so through faith and baptism. So how does someone become a part of this kingdom or church? Right? Through those two things, faith and baptism. Right? That's how we enter the church and are born. And that's part of the goal of this class, right? Is some of you will be baptized. Those of you who haven't yet been baptized will be baptized and thus enter the church at the Easter vision. And that makes us children of God members of Christ, and temples of the Holy Spirit. Right? So this is, again, too big to take in. That's the problem, right? Here's the, the danger is we look out in the world and we see, ah, there's Catholic Church, there's the you know, Methodist, there's Eastern Orthodox, there's Muslims and Mormons, etc. And it all looks the same. It's on the same level, right? A different institutional um, religious body. And what we're saying here is that, no, I mean, yes, the church is has a visible 
aspect in which she looks like the other um, religious bodies. But she's more than that. Becoming a member of the church is to become a member of Christ's body. To become a son or daughter of God and a temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? So there's an invisible part to the life of the church as well as a visible part. Right? Like Jesus. He was visible and invisible. He had a visible part. Looked like a Jewish man of any other man from Nazareth. But he had an invisible part being God. Right? And so the church likewise is both visible and invisible. And insofar as the church is visible, the church looks like other religious bodies. But insofar as she's invisible, she's different than other bodies by being founded by God made that. Questions on that? Church is the people of God. Right? So, that's, so we can call the church the people of God, like the Old Testament. Right? So in the Old Testament, Israel was chosen from all the other nations of the earth, freely by God elected, to be the chosen people and the people of God. The church, the Catholic church, similarly, is the new people of God. That doesn't, it's not, little parenthesis here, not by way of replacement. So we shouldn't think Jews are no longer the people of God. God elected and called them, and he doesn't, he's faithful to his election. But he's, Jesus made a new covenant and has expanded the people of God to include all nations. Right? So the church is the people of God. And, and the reason, so this is it getting at it. The catechism here is getting at a question. Why isn't it good enough for me simply to believe in God and to worship Him in my God corner in my house, just by myself? I'm going to throw that out there. Why isn't that, why do we need a church? Why can't we just worship God? Everybody, wouldn't that say, so my mother-in-law is an atheist, Jewish atheist, and she gives me a hard time every time I see her, so I spend Thanksgiving weekend with her. And, um, and so part of the hard time is, Religion just causes division and hate and war. Why can't we just worship God, just in our God corner, if you like, yeah. and then we wouldn't have any uh, religious wars? Uh, why not? Because you don't have the invisible part of the church. Okay. I, w from, I wouldn't have either part, right? If, if, it would, if God wanted to call us to himself, just privately, we we'd all have revelation. Yeah, we'd all have to be Moses. Well, why, I suppose God could have done that, right? He could reveal himself equally to everyone, and we'd all be Moses and Jesus. But he hasn't chosen to do that. Why not? Because he wants us to all come together. Yeah, it's so simple. It's because he, the purpose, the reason why he's made us in the first place is he wants to make us into one body. That is a communion of persons, like a marriage, but bigger. And so we talked about this a month or so ago when we looked at the creation of man, that God didn't create Adam to be alone, but it wasn't good. God said it's not good for Adam to be alone. Right? Let us make a helper for him. Human beings were made for communion, and communion is interpersonal relations. And yes, a family is a beautiful thing, but it's a small interpersonal group of relations, and we're actually desire a bigger one. 
And that is universal. And so, yes, God has made human beings social. Right? We've got a nature that's social. And, and even more social than any other animal. Now, you might think that's weird, because ants and, I don't know, bees and birds are pretty social, right? Every animal species is social in that sense. That um, like they, they, by instinct, um, live a life in common in which each one helps take care of the needs of the whole, right? But human beings are even more social. Why is that? And it's because we're able to love. Well, I've read it before mm -hmm. that any species um, that they ah, thank you. Any species, um, like wouldn't different animal species, wouldn't be able to sit next to each other because they're too territorial, you know, in the same, in that way. And while human beings, you know, just can all get together and sit next to each other and not have a problem, you know, because it's just we're just made that way. Yeah, we're made, and it's it's because we have a um, a far deeper communication, right? So animals have some communication, but um, human beings, through our reason, um, are able to um, share our inner life with one another, and even more so, we have a um, a will which is able to love another for their own sake and not just for my sake, and thus to give of myself to one another. And in fact, we find ourselves miserable if we don't do that. Right? Because we're made for that. Um, and yes, we have territorial instincts too, but um, our reason over, can overcome that. Right? Reason and love overcomes that. Yeah. And so yeah, we're profoundly social beings. And so God doesn't want to save us in isolation. But he saves us precisely by bringing us into ever deeper communion. A deeper communion, first of all, in our own families. Right? So I can speak to this. Having been married as an atheist, and both of my wife and I, and, and then converting together, right, the faith made even the communion of marriage and the family far more profound. And, and then, but God wants it to extend universally, right? And that's what the life of heaven is going to be. It's going to be a church, um, but a Catholic church. The word Catholic, I'll explain a few minutes, means, does anybody know what Catholic means? Universal. universal. All right, so God doesn't want to save us in isolation, but by making us into one people. This is why the idea about, so often in the Protestant world, so I had a friend who was a member of Protestant denomination that kept on splintering, and uh, at the end, he was in a house church, in other words, a church that consisted of his family. <laughs> and there's that not, you can see, that's not God's plan, right? Because he wants us to be, in a communion that is as large as possible. Uh, now that doesn't mean you can't be friends, right, with the, with the people. Um, but, um, and obviously that's why there's a parish and why the church has a structure in which it's not just simply the universal church, right, because we meet people um, through our bodies. But nevertheless, he wants us to be part of a people that's one. Right? And he wants it to be as universal as possible because he's the father of all. Right? Just as no parent likes to see divisions among their children, right? in which brothers and sisters don't speak to one another. Right? And so God, um, the father of every human being, wants to bring us into one people, 
even though the differences are good, right? The differences of language and culture and nationality, all of those things are good. But he wants us to be in a unity greater than all of those different, that includes all those differences. Yeah, and it's a unity formed by the union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God himself, we said, a couple months back when we lived the Trinity, isn't a, a solitary a solitary monarch, right? He's a communion of persons, God. And that means that he wants his creation to reflect him. And we reflect him by being in a communion of persons and that has a unity like that of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that. That was his last prayer before he died. It's in John chapter 17. Great prayer of Jesus. It's sometimes called his high priestly prayer. So it's what he prayed before he went to get seven. And he prays, Father, right, that they may be one, Jesus' disciples, as we are one. Right, how much one is Jesus with his Father? Totally one. Distinct in person, but totally one. And he wants us to be likewise distinct, yes, in maybe in culture and language and lots of things, individuality, but to be one in a communion. And this is the beauty of the church. Right? So often we just see the, the ugly side of the church, and that's scandals and abuse. But the church has a beauty right, that we often don't miss because of the scandals. And that is the beauty of unity. Okay. There are lots of images of the church in the, whole, in, in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament um, prefigures the church by speaking of the people of God with different metaphors. So today, in today's readings for Mass, the, um, the first reading from Ezekiel spoke about um, God as a shepherd, right? And we're a sheepfold. Right? And so that's a beautiful image of the church. Jesus is the good shepherd, and we're his sheep, right? And he wants us to be one flock under one shepherd. Sometimes there's an analogy from agriculture. And it's, think of the, the parable of the sower. Jesus is a farmer, right? He sows good seed, and it lands on all different kinds of land. And that reflects our different dispositions. Yeah. And so, yeah, that you can think of the church as a field in which good wheat is sown. As an olive grove, Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Right? So that's an image of the church. And in that image, a vineyard, and it shows the union between Jesus, who's the, the life-giving uh, source, and we're the branches that come out of it. In other words, the union of Christ and ourselves. And sometimes it's the analogy of a temple made of living stones. And so as a church, think of the, the cathedral. And, and it's we use the exact same word, right? We just, use the word church to speak of the building and of the, um, the living building made of living stones. And St. Peter uses that image of living stones in his first letter. So one of the books of the New Testament is a letter of Peter in which he says, you are living stones making up God's temple. Okay? And then finally from family life, and maybe this is the most important of all, um, Christ is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. Right? So the church is the bride of Christ. And Christ the bridegroom 
has given his life for his bride. And when he died on, on the cross, and his side was pierced and it came out water and, and blood, and that signifies the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. And we can say that Christ, from Christ's pierced side, his bride, the church, came forth from the sacrament of baptism and the Eucharist. Like Eve from Adam's side at the beginning in the creation. And so the whole church is the new Eve or bride of Christ. And, so these are, and then the church is a family, right? The church is also mother. The church is mother because we were born to her through baptism or living. And the church is a family, the family of God. And we're made brothers and sisters of Christ as well as sons of the Father. Right, what's the origin of the church? So Jesus founded the church. Right? We can say that the, the origin, though, goes back to the eternal divine plan from all eternity. And then Israel was prefiguring the church, and already in some sense we could say the church um, in preparation. Right? The sign of the future gathering of nations. But it's Jesus who founded the church. And he did it not just in one... So sometimes people ask, what's the birthday of the church? And we usually say Pentecost. But there's no one birthday, because Jesus founded the church all through his life. First of all, by being born, he's the head of the body. So he's founding the church there. But then, um, when he um, got baptized, he founded the church by instituting baptism. The Last Supper, he was founding the church by instituting the Eucharist. Um, on Good Friday, he was founding the church by dying for her and meriting the graces to be given to her. On Easter Sunday, he was founding the church by rising from the dead and um, giving his resurrection to the church. And we share, even now, in Jesus' risen life through the sacraments. And we will share in our bodies at the end of time when he comes again. And then the last day we can say Jesus was founding the church was on Pentecost. We looked at it last week when he sent the Holy Spirit to his disciples and gave her the last of the sacraments confirmation. Because Pentecost would be the first confirmation. All right, so in all of those days, um, and then something like that, when he chose the 12 apostles, he was founding his church. And when he picked Peter and said to Peter, you are rock, on this rock I will found, build my church, right, he was founding the church then too. All right, so who's the founder of the church? Jesus. But in some way we could say the Holy Spirit also working with Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit is, we can say, the soul of the church. So the church, often, right, we speak of the church as an institution. But we can speak of, think of the church as alive, alive through the spirit. And therefore, the church is a body, a living body, with a head and members. Right, who's the head? Jesus is the head, right? He's alive now in heaven, having ascended, but still alive. He's the head, and he remains always the head of the church. And it's a body with lots of members. More members than, I suppose, I don't know how many cells. Anybody know how many cells are in my body? But, uh, Big trillions. Okay, well, all right, maybe not quite as many as cells in my body. But in any case, something similar. 
right? He wants to be the head of a body that's got a billion members. Yeah. And uh, so we're we're uh, and the yeah, this is where I was going with this. And the every living body's got to have a soul. And what's the soul of the church? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit animates the church. Jesus is the head, and we're the picky, the little toe. Oh, and the fulfillment of it will be in heaven, right? But it's the same church here on earth, and sometimes you'll hear these names, church militant. So we could say the church on earth, Sometimes that's called militant because it's a battle here, right? We fight against the enemies, sin, and death, and temptation. And then the church triumphant in heaven. And those who have gone before us, the saints, and, and those who are not canonized but are and died in the grace of God, that's the church triumphant. And, and so right now, there's it's one church. Part of her is in heaven, and part of her is on earth. And part of her is being purified in purgatory, and we'll talk about that in two weeks. Okay. Yeah, so the church has three levels, we could say. So in between these two is purgatory. And we'll talk about it later, but just very briefly, purgatory is a place of purification for those who die in the grace of God, but still not being perfectly purified. And thus it's reasonable to think most people pass through that. Yeah. But we can hope to skip it. But it too is part of the church. Right? So church on earth, church in heaven, and the church being purified. Questions on that? So the church is a mystery. And so again, this is what we said before. People think of the church as simply a visible institution. There would be no mystery in a simple, visible, institutional body practicing religion. But we want to, we put it in the creed, right? It's part of the creed. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And so you can see that the church is put together with the Trinity in what we believe. And therefore, it's a mystery. And it's a mystery, the church, in her divine life in her visible, invisible dimension that we can't see. In other words, the fact that, so I believe, and we say in the creed, in the church that it's um, one body. Right? So when we say one, we're saying that we're believing that the church is one body um, made up of Christ and us, and the Holy Spirit as the soul. That's mysterious, right? It's something that we believe without seeing. Does that make sense to everyone? In other words, the church also is something we believe in. Not directly as the end, right? That's not the goal. The goal is God, but the church is his body and therefore mysterious. Right? So the church is like Christ. That's the point here. Jesus had two natures, human and divine. All that we could see when he was walking in Nazareth, all that people could see was the human. And they had to believe the divine, like Peter, right? Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it's the same with the church, right? So 
who is the church, we could ask. And most people say, well, it's just a religious denomination. And we want to say, no, it's the body of Christ. With the, with the church being Christ's body, would it be like an accurate analogy to say that when there's like really deep scandals in the church, like it's like a disease, like, you know, different things that come up? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that later. But, um, so we're going to say, what we say in the creed is, I believe in one holy church. Yeah. How is that holiness compatible with the sin of the members? And so what we're simply going to say is the sins of the members is definitely visible, mm -hmm. right? But it doesn't annihilate or destroy the holiness of the church. And that's because when we sin, what do we do? We turn around and walk away from the life of the church. Nobody who's sinning is doing the life of the church. Okay. Sin is the opposite of the church's life. And in that sense, yes, it's like a disease that's contrary to the life of of any healthy and living body. And that's why the sins of the members aren't actually the sin of the church. We speak that way, right? The church did this bad thing. And what should we really say? This member of the church did this evil. I didn't say for us. Right? When we do something bad, if I do something bad, I'm a Catholic, and I shouldn't say the church did this bad thing, but it was me. But that, it does mean that it's worse. If I'm a member of Christ, that I'm known to be baptized, and even when I teach at a seminary, and it would be the same for a priest or a nun, to the degree that we're publicly identified with the life of the church, and when we sin, that makes the sin graver and cause more damage. Is it, is it accurate to say that the invisible quality of the church is always holy, and yes. at, over time, the visible was trying to become more holy? Excellent. Okay. Yeah, excellent. Right. Even, yeah, so the invisible divine part of the church can't not be holy because it's Christ and his spirit. And we, the visible members, are those who can be living that life more or less. And in fact, it's possible for people to be members of the church, we'll cover this later, who are not in a state of grace. Because I can be a member, I'm baptized, I say I go to church on Sunday, and let's say I'm having an adulterous affair. I would, or whatever you want to do. And I would be, in that case, a dead member. Because if I'm living in a mortal sin, and I'm, I'm still a member of the church, but I'm not alive with Christ's life. All right, so that can happen. And yes, that, that, it's worse if I'm baptized and I'm betrayed Christ. The church, so despite that, despite the fact that there can be sins of the members, the church is, we could say, this is from the Second Vatican Council, a universal sacrament of salvation. We're going to look later at the seven sacraments. Yeah. And so the seven sacraments are rites or signs that Jesus instituted. But the whole church is like a sacrament in this sense. A sacrament is a sign that does what it represents. So baptism, it represents sins being washed away, and they really get washed away. 
The church is a sign. The church is a sign of unity. Right? So the, the Catholic Church has a billion members all through the world, right? All different languages, cultures, and nations. That's a sign of a still greater unity. The unity that God wants there to be in the church in heaven. And so the church on earth is like a sacrament of the church. Is this not working? Okay. Oh. The church on earth, thank you, and is like a, a sacrament of the, um, of the union that God wants to have that's even bigger than this church with a billion members. Questions on that? So the church, we could say, is the sign of union with God and union with one another. A twofold union. So we often speak of it as vertical and horizontal, like the cross. Right? So Christ has won for us union with God, that's the vertical, but also union with one another by breaking down the walls of division. He doesn't break them down, though, all at once. And that has to do with what we said before about sin and scandal. Right? So it's the task, we could say, of the disciples of Christ to break down those walls of division so that um, communion and peace be more extended. Okay. All right, how does one become a member? We said faith and baptism. Right, so those are the, the two. So for a baby, they're not yet able to make their own profession of faith, and baptism is enough. So babies at baptism become members of the church. Right, and then... Um, the parents at baptism speak for them and promise to educate them in the faith. Yeah. And so we, yeah, we become um, members by faith and baptism, and it makes us uh, members of this family with God the Father as origin, Jesus as our head, and the dignity and freedom of the sons of God. And so the church, very often people think of the church as limiting us with her sexual morality teaching or whatever it may be. But the fact is the opposite, that the church is instituted by Jesus to liberate us with the true freedom. A true freedom not to do whatever we want, but the true freedom to live as we were made to live and to attain the happiness that we were uh, created for. Right? And so Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Right? The salt is meant not just for itself, right, but for um, to make um, and to be the light of the world as well. Right? So that would be the mission of the church. Now, the church has a mission bigger than her boundaries, and, and that is to ultimately extend evermore and the destiny of the kingdom of God. All right, Jesus is the end. So Jesus is prophet is a priest, prophet, and king. We looked at that. I don't know if I did that all in one. Yeah. But Jesus revealed the Father. That's the sense in which he's a prophet. Today we're celebrating Jesus as king, king of the universe. And he's king not by um, ruling in the way that people usually think of on a glorious throne, but he's king, actually, um, ruling from the cross in some way, conquering his kingdom through the cross. Um, so it's a kingdom, kingship by service, basically. Service and, um, yeah, service 
and love and right ordering. And then priest in the sense that Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice of himself on Calvary. Right? So he's prophet, priest, and king on the cross. If he's the head and we're the members of his body, we too have to be um, kings, prophets, and priests. That is, the whole body, the whole church, shares in Christ's three offices of king, prophet, and priest. So what does that mean? Yeah. So part of the dignity of being, of being baptized and being a member of the church, and especially through confirmation. Confirmation gives a mission. And it's the mission to share in Christ's work of being king, prophet, and priest. And therefore, to build up his church with him. He's the head of a body, right? He continues to build up his church by giving us the graces. But he wants to build up his church precisely through us on earth. Right? And so this is a really important thing that I think most people miss. And that is, to be a member of the church means to be called to a mission. A mission infinitely bigger than any other you could um, wish for yourself. I think of what, people have all kinds of ambitions. It might be, I don't know, to win a gold medal at the Olympics, to be the greatest pianist or musician or you, you name it, actor. Um, Jesus is giving a greater mission, and that is to build his church. Right? And that's the mission he gave to his apostles, right? To Peter, um, on this rock I will build my church, right? And he made the apostles co-workers with him. He makes all the baptized and confirmed um, likewise co-workers. And that means um, sharing in his kingship, in his prophetic mission, and his priesthood. Let's do one by one. So to share in his kingship means simply to serve as he served. And... Um, Today's gospel was the perfect reading for this, because right? it's the feast of Christ the King. So anybody remember what today's gospel was? Matthew 25. So what happens? What's it about? Yeah. Yeah. So he says, the, he's speaking about the second coming, and he says, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, will sit on his glorious throne, and he will separate the sheep from the goats. Like the sheep on his right hand from the goats on his left hand. And how does he separate, separate them? He says, to those on his right hand, he'll say, blessed are you, my father, for when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was in prison, you visited me, um, etc. Um, and he lists seven works of mercy. And he said, whenever you did it to the least of my little ones, you did it to me. Right? And they'll say, when did we do that? Whenever you right, did it to the least of my little ones. So he gives that list of the seven works of mercy four times. And then he goes to those on the other side and he says, um, go into the outer darkness. Why? Because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was mourning, you didn't console me, etc. And they say, Lord, when did we not do that? When you didn't do it to the least of my little ones. Right? You didn't do it to me. And so what Jesus is showing there is that we're all called to be the, the good Samaritan, as it were. Right? To be as Jesus and to treat everyone as Jesus, and both as Jesus treated them and to treat them and as if they were Jesus. 
Yeah. And that's our kingly role. Does that make sense to everyone? In other words, our kingly mission is to exercise service. And it's essentially works of mercy. Jesus listed corporal works, bodily works of mercy, which are like the most visible. But there are also spiritual works of mercy that are no less important. And that's basically every kindness that we do to people is um, either a physical or a spiritual work of mercy. It could be teaching those um, who are counseling those in doubt, teaching those who are ignorant, and listening to those who are having sorrow and who need to share that. It can be putting up with somebody who's irritating. Um, all of those are works of mercy. And that's um, our kingly mission. Um, all works of solidarity in which we seek the common good, works of social justice, that's sharing in Christ's kingship. Right? Working for the poor in all the different senses of poverty, whether it's right, the materially poor or the spiritually poor. All right? So that's the kingship that we're talking about. Prophet, to be a prophet, means to sh communicate the gospel to others. And that would be to share revelation. And we do that first by our witness. Right? So the most important prophecy that we can give is living a Christian life with integrity. And when we fall, to um, repent. Right? So repentance is actually the most prophetic thing we can do. And then to speak about it when people ask us. Right? So that would be our prophetic work. Our priestly work is, and we're going to talk about that later, but the priestly work is to offer spiritual sacrifices. And what that means is simply to offer everything that we just talked about, our kingly mission and our prophetic mission, to offer it with Jesus' sacrifice. And we do that in every Mass. Right, so when you go to Mass on Sunday, or if you go during the week, and that's part of why we're there. And it's a major, it's maybe the most important part, is that Jesus doesn't want to be offered alone. He's the head, right? He doesn't want to be offered as a decapitated head, but he wants our life to be offered with him. And we do that simply spiritually in our heart by putting our Christian life with its struggles and with the desires for his grace on the altar with him. Simply in our heart and mind doing that. And that's offering a spiritual sacrifice to God like the lambs and bulls and goats of the Old Testament, but more precious. Questions on that? So we'll talk more about this. But, so this is, all Christians are called to share in those three offices of Christ. Prophet, priest, and king. And confirmation is the sacrament in which that mission is given. And that's why confirmation is so important. Okay. How is the church the body of Christ? Simply because Christ unites us to his body. Right? So he rose and his... Um, even you can see it on the cross. He's on the cross like this, as if beckoning us to um, enter his embrace. And we enter by the sacraments and by faith, right? by baptism and faith. And, and we grow. So to be a member of his body isn't simply a yes, no, like an on-off switch. That's what we usually think. Right? I'm a member of his body because I've been baptized. I'm done. No. We become more a member of his body the more we grow in his invisible life. It's like, uh, how should we put this? Um, if, um, if we're members of the body of Christ, right, as Christ is growing, the members better be growing too. Right? It, I better not have a, a baby-sized you know, arm. 
And, and so to be a member of the body is to grow to the full stature of Christ. And that happens throughout our life, right? So we're called to grow in this membership in the church. Yeah, so the church grows in lots of ways. The church grows visibly by getting new members. The church grows by getting new cultures when new cultures enter into the church. And the church grows most of all by um, growth in holiness of the members. All right, who's the head? We said Christ, right? Christ is the head and we're the pinky. And we've already done this. The Christ is the bridegroom and we're the bride. And here, women have an advantage of thinking of themselves, imagining this, and it's true of all. Men and women are all called to the, be the bride of Christ, right? But I think women can um, imagine it better. This, by the way, is why there's a male priesthood. We'll talk about that later. But the male priesthood is because the priest is representing Christ the bridegroom. And the church, notice I haven't, I try to avoid the um, it to speak about the church. And I try and always speak of her as a she because she's a bride, the church, and a mother. Right? So Christ's bride and our mother. Yeah, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, again, because of the invisible um, presence of the Holy Spirit as the soul of the church. And so Christ builds up the church through the sacraments and the word. Right? So the word of God sanctifies and the sacraments sanctify. Sometimes we speak of charisms, and I think I mentioned this last time, but I was probably in a rush. And so charisms are special gifts that are given to some members of the church and not to others. So there are certain things that are given to all, and that's faith, hope, and charity, and the different virtues, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, counsel, understanding, those are all meant for all. But other gifts are not given to all. So for example, the priesthood. Not everyone is called to the priesthood. Obviously, only men are called, and most men are not called. And I teach at the seminary, and one of the things that we do in seminary formation is discerning, is a man called to the priesthood or to marriage? And so God has a plan for each one of us. Both of them are gifts or charisms that are not given to all. Right? Marriage or the priesthood. And then there are tons of others. And St. Paul gives a list of them in 1 Corinthians 12. And looking for my pen. Ah, here it is. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. In both of those, he speaks about um, there being many different members and different gifts. And um, some are called to be apostles. Some are called to be teachers. Some are called with gifts of healing. Some uh, gifts of prophecy. And um, those are not... Uh, all of those charisms... are for building up the body, right? So we need some to be bishops, but not everybody can be a bishop. Right? If everyone were to be a bishop, there wouldn't, right, it would be like, uh, it wouldn't be one body. Uh, 
And likewise, not everyone is a teacher, not everyone works miracles, not everyone does healing, etc. But everyone has their own gift okay, for building up the church. Questions on that? And that's, yeah, that's part of discernment, is just coming to understand what is my mission and role in Christ's body. And everybody's going to, so there's nobody that the answer is none. Right? It might be offering my suffering, right, if I'm crippled. It might be offering, and, I mean, all the different forms of service that we talked about in the kingly mission are all charisms. Okay? All right, so let's, how is the church one? So here's something a little more controversial. Um, so the church is, so we say that in the creed, right? I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. So what do we mean by that one? And who does it include? Right? Are all the different Protestant denominations part of that one Catholic church? Right, so that's the question we're posing here. And the catechism answers the church is one because she has got one source, right? And that's Ephesians chapter 4. We, are, we have one Lord. One father, one faith, one hope, one calling. Right, so the church is one because one source. And the unity of the Trinity. And Jesus Christ, as her head, established the unity of all people in one body. And he gave a soul that unites them in one communion. And so the church has but one faith one sacramental life and one apostolic succession. I'll explain this in just a minute. One common hope and one in the same charity. So all of those things are, um, so we've just listed there five sources of unity. One faith, one sacramental life, one succession from the 12 apostles, one common hope, and one shared charity, that is the ability to love, that comes from above. That's what makes the church one. Two of those are invisible, and that would be the last two, common hope and charity. Right? We can't see it. I mean, partly you see it when, if somebody has, doesn't have charity. Right? If I'm a serial murderer, um, that might show that I don't have charity. But normally, we can't know that. I can't just simply look at you and see that you have it or not. And hope and charity. Faith, likewise, somebody might think is totally invisible, but we publicly profess it. And that's what we profess in the creed. And so the faith has a visible dimension. And as does the sacramental life and apostolic succession. So the unity of the visible church comes from the three that I put in red here. One faith, one sacramental life, one apostolic Succession. And so the church is one because she's got one creed and one set of dogmas that she believes in. And that means that I can separate myself out, tragically, from the unity of the church by disbelieving those dogmas. Right? So if I were to say, I don't believe in the divinity of Christ, I'm not sharing the faith of the church. And the same thing would be true of any other dogma that the church teaches as revealed by God. Right? So one in faith, right? And that's, so this is a cause of division 
among Protestant denominations um, with the Catholic Church, right? There'll be, again, it'll differ by according to denomination, but there'll be some differences in what we believe. And so there won't be a full unity in faith. Does that make sense? One sacramental life, and this would be sharing one worship. So the Catholic Church in the whole world, let's say the church here in St. Louis and the church in Siberia or, uh, or China or Vietnam, we have the exact same sacraments and we'll worship in different languages, right, in English or in Vietnamese, but we'll be worshiping the same because we'll be celebrating the same Eucharist here and there, right? The same sacrament of baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance or confession, uh, anointing of the sick, marriage and holy orders. And so the Catholic Church is one in her sacrament. And this too is a cause of separation with the Protestant denominations, right? Because the Protestants, for the most part, only recognize two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And there are even differences on how we understand the, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And so Catholics and Protestants aren't one in sacramental life, right? And this is a tragedy. Yeah. And that's why we don't have intercommunion. Um, in other words, that's why a, a Protestant can't simply come and receive communion in the Catholic Church because um, it would be a sign that we're in full communion and it's tragically not so. Right? We don't believe the same thing about the Eucharist. Say. Questions on that? Yeah. I can understand with uh, things like the sacraments, but let's say a Catholic Methodist. Mm -hmm. Same God. Same God. Can they um, can join in prayer? Oh, absolutely. Great question. We absolutely can pray together, and that is a way towards greater unity, and that's a very good thing to do. So we can pray together, but we can't celebrate sacraments together that we don't share the same faith in. They can be present, though, obviously. So, and I mean, those of you who are not yet Catholics, because you're in the RCA, um, absolutely can come to Mass, but wait until um, you get fully incorporated to the church to receive communion, right? And so right now, long for it and ask Jesus to come into your heart. So yes, absolutely, we can pray together and that's a very good thing. And the reason we can do that is because we share a common faith in so many things, but not full, right? In other words, it's partial. It's a partial communion, but not a full communion. Right, so we make that distinction. So um, Catholics are in full communion with this church, but Protestants and even Eastern Orthodox are in partial communion of different grades. Right? And then there's also invisible communion, which is more important, but is unseen. And that's being in a state of grace or not. And that can, yes, that absolutely can be the case with somebody who's not in visible unity. They can be in invisible communion and in fact put us to shame. All right. And then the third one is apostolic succession. And that is basically governance. In other words, Christ has instituted um, the church to be one body. And in order to be one, one society, you can't have, um, you have to have a shared governance. Right? Take the United States. Would we be one country, one social body, if we had you know, 10 different presidents? Right, part of, or 10 different Congresses. 
And that's what caused the Civil War, right? And, and so part of being one country is to have one governance. Yes, there are lots of different, say, senators and representatives. And so in the Catholic Church, there are many, many bishops. But the bishops have to be in communion with one principle of unity, who's the successor of the Apostle Peter. And I'll, I'll come back to this. Right? But that's what we mean by being in apostolic succession. So to be in apostolic succession means that if I want to be a member of Christ's church that he founded in the year 33 with Peter and James and John and Andrew and the other members of the 12, if I want to be in the same church, I want to be in a, a church in which the successors of Peter, Andrew, John, and James, etc., um, are governing the church today. And this is, in fact, the easiest test of what is the true church. Where do I find the true church on earth that Jesus instituted 2,000 years ago? I need to look for the successors of those that he made to govern his church in the year 33. Right? The Eastern Orthodox here have a huge advantage over the Protestants. And that is the Eastern Orthodox have apostolic succession. They've retained the succession from the, um, the, the apostles. The problem, though, is that they're not in communion with the successor of Peter. Right? So that would be a much lesser stumbling block, but still an obstacle to full communion. Okay? And that's the reason why, if somebody would ask me, I'd say, I'm Eastern Orthodox, should I become Catholic? I would say, yes, of course. And that's the reason, because you want to be in communion with the successor of Peter to be in the church that Jesus founded fully. Well, I guess all different ones because they'd be in different places, but they speak about Andrew in particular with regard to Constantinople. But it's not as if Andrew actually went to Constantinople the way that Peter did, in fact, go to Rome and his bones are there. But we could simply say that they're successors of, of, of many different of the apostles. And because yeah, it's not as if we can trace here in St. Louis, what apostle are we from? Right? We, we I can't answer that question. But we're from the apostles. All right? So this is basically these three things are what I would need to have to be in visible, in full visible communion with the church. The same faith the same sacraments, and the same governance. Right? And that means that last one being in communion with the bishops of the Catholic world who are in communion with the Pope, who's the successor of Peter. So that's another way to ask this is, all right, in the creed we say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What church is that? Right? And so the church answers here with the technical, so that the right answer, what church is that, that we say in the creed, the answer is in fact the Catholic Church. And of course this is scandalous for those who are not Catholic, because they say, ah, you're being, I don't know, elitist, and, uh, yeah. but, well, but that's, it's something I have to believe. I have to believe that Jesus founded a church to be visibly one and not just spiritually one. I can be part of that one spiritual, I can be spiritually um, in communion if I'm um, not visibly in communion, but I'm in a state of grace. But I want to be both 
visibly and invisibly in communion with the church. All right, so what, where does this church exist? So the, this is from the Second Vatican Council, Vatican II. It says the one church of Christ as a society, right? So the church is a kind of society. It's a supernatural society, visible and invisible, but it is a society that has a visible nature and a visible governance like the United States, right? The United States is a visible society with a visible governance, visible institution. The church is likewise, right? So she's a society constituted and organized in the world. This one church subsists in the Catholic church governed by the successor of Peter and the bishops in communion with him. Only through this church can one obtain the fullness of the means of salvation. Notice the church doesn't say everyone who's outside the one Catholic church will go to hell. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that um, to be in, have the fullness of the means of salvation, I'll only find in the Catholic church. And the reason for that is the Lord has entrusted all the blessings of the, uh, of the new covenant to the apostolic college. To, his, to the, um, the 12 apostles under the headship of Peter. All right? So um, there's a technical term there. Somebody should ask, what does subsist mean? Um, and it's simple. Well, so this is, there's been huge arguments among Catholic theologians about this, but, um, but it's not that difficult. To subsist means two things. It means to continue, above all, it means to continue to exist. Um, so the Catholic Church subsists through time, through the centuries, the, the church founded by Christ, sorry, the church founded by Christ in the year 33, right at Pentecost, and when he sent the Holy Spirit. Where is that church today? It continues to exist in the Catholic Church. But it also means, has its fullness of being, its essential being in the Catholic Church. And that's the next thing here, I think. Yeah, so it goes on to say, in the churches and ecclesial communities which are separated from full communion with the Catholic Church, what would be an example? All Protestant denominations and the Eastern Orthodox. All of those would be, so the, the churches, there's, when, when this document says in the churches separated, that would be the Eastern Orthodox churches. And the ecclesial communities, that would be the different Protestant denominations. Many elements of sanctification and truth can be found. All right? So what we're not saying is, all right, here's the Catholic Church, and everything good is there, and here are the Protestant denominations, and there's no truth or sanctification there. Right? We're saying the opposite. We're saying, yes, many elements of truth and sanctification are in Protestant denominations. What would be an example? Tons. What would be like the most obvious example? What element of truth and sanctification do all Protestants have? Yeah, they faith. Faith in the Nicene Creed and Scripture, right? There's slight difference. We have seven more books than, than they recognize. But nevertheless, that would be in um, two things, faith and Scripture. And what else do all Protestants have? Or almost all. Baptism, yeah, the foundational sacrament by which we become a member of his body. What else? Lots of traditions even though um, Catholics uh, recognize tradition with a capital T and Protestants don't. Nevertheless, um, Protestants will recognize many, many 
um, ecclesial traditions um, and live according to them. All right? So we have a ton in common. But nevertheless, um, the fullness of the means are found in the Catholic Church. That's what Vatican II is saying here. Um, what would the difference be between member, uh, non-Catholic Christians being incorporated into Christ by baptism versus Catholic people being yeah. incorporated into Christ's body? I don't, I don't yeah, know great question. Sense, yeah, so every baby is, um, is incorporated into Christ's body, body, right? So the baby can't separate. So every baby, in effect, is getting Catholic baptism in that sense of being made a full member of the church, right? So you couldn't say to any baby that they're in imperfect communion. But when we get to the age of reason, and um, let's say I've been baptized into the Methodist church. In reality, I've been baptized into the church. But once I become a Methodist, say, or whatever it may be, I'm just picking that random, um, I'm going to be lacking some element of full communion. And that is the fullness of faith and the fullness of the sacraments. I'll be missing five sacraments. And I won't be in governed by the successors of the apostles. So I'll be missing, I'll be in imperfect communion. I'm, right? Does that make sense? So yes, baptism makes one a member of the body. But if I have baptism outside the Catholic Church, that's going to be imperfect communion when I get to be of age. Uh-huh. So, if one was baptized in a Baptist church, shouldn't they be rebaptized? No. Great question. And the reason is because there's one, so one of the things that Paul says in the chapter on unity, Ephesians chapter 4, he says, one baptism, right, one faith, one God and Father. There's no, either, so, if somebody's baptized, let's say, whether it's an Eastern Orthodox baptism or a Protestant baptism, if they're baptized um, rightly, which means um, um, it's really simple, with water rather than you know, something else other than water, and with these words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that baptism, and I'm intending to be baptized, I'm not uh, you know, kicking and screaming and, and being forced to be baptized against my will, and that's going to be valid, meaning true baptism, and you can only get baptized once. And so somebody who is baptized... Um, in any Protestant denomination, um, is truly baptized and can't be rebaptized. But what they can receive is whatever they makes was imperfect in that communion. So, for example, Protestants only don't recognize confirmation as a sacrament. Anglicans do, but they don't actually have it. So I, I was confirmed in the Anglican Church um, shortly before entering RCA, and I got that wasn't. So that was determined to be invalid. And the reason is because of the, and it wasn't the right minister. The minister has to be a Catholic bishop. But, um, but for baptism, any, the reason for this difference is that anyone can baptize in an emergency. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be a Catholic. It can be any person who intends to baptize. And that's why baptism is valid much broader than other sacraments. All right? So, yes. So baptism can only be received once. And um, somebody who was outside the, the Catholic Church got baptized there. All they need is to receive what they were lacking. The confirmation. Yeah, confirmation, um, sacrament of penance, right? So that would be confession, um, the Eucharist, and making a profession of faith. 
Right? And that's what we do at the Easter Vigil for all of you who've been baptized. And that's beautiful, right? Because it's, if, we were to, if we were not to recognize... So Eastern Orthodox, I think, they generally don't recognize the baptism of other um, Catholics or Protestants. Um, and that kind of sends a stronger message that that would be in contradiction to this. What we're saying is, in the Catholic Church, there's the fullness. But we're not saying that outside the Catholic Church, there's nothing. Right? There are many elements of sanctification, and maybe the most important of which is baptism together with faith. And that's why we call them our present brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. But it's a tragedy, right? It's a tragedy. So we're not, again, it's not as if Protestants don't have anything. They have many elements of sanctification. But those very elements that they have ought to lead, um, I didn't put that in here, but are, um, lead to full communion. So for example, baptism has a power to bring one into fuller communion. And likewise, the faith that Protestants have ought to lead them right to the Catholic Church. Just for example, all Protestants believe in Math, you know, what's told in Matthew 16, um, that Christ said, you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And so the very faith in scripture of a Protestant ought to lead them to the Catholic Church. Right, and likewise for Orthodox. Okay. We ought to desire, so this is a tragedy, so it's a tragedy that we don't have full communion. Um, all, all those who um, believe in Jesus and count themselves to be Christian, it's a huge tragedy that we're not fully one in the visible sense. And therefore, we want to pray that that unity gets expanded. It's not as if the church, so it would be wrong to say this. Well, let me throw this as a question. Is, the church won today? That's an ambiguous, confusing question. But the answer's gotta be yes, because we say it in the creed, I believe in one church. So there is a church who is one, right? And that's the Catholic church. But when we pray for unity, what we're praying for is that those who are in imperfect communion be brought into perfect or full communion. Right? In other words, we pray that all Protestant denominations um, enter into RCA and become Catholic and Eastern Orthodox likewise so that we can be one visibly and invisibly. Right? And that's a, a big deal. And so we call this the ecumenical movement. Ecumenic, ecumenical means in the whole world. And it's, it's, um, we use that term, the ecumenical movement, as um, to pray for the unity of all Christians and a unity that from the Catholic point of view, has got to be in the Catholic Church, right? But you go step by step, right? You start praying together. You start in being in dialogue and um, discussion together, etc. Questions on that? Right, so by conversion of heart, prayer, and theological dialogue. Okay, the holiness of the church. And so this was your question at the beginning. So, that we, so we likewise say this in the creed. So this is something I have to believe. I have to believe that the church is holy, even though looking out in the world and reading about scandals of people who are members of the church, I might be tempted to think the opposite. But it would be false. The church continues to be holy, even if a bishop or a priest or a layperson sins. And even if they sin very gravely. 
right? Because they're not the whole church, right? So the reason why the church is holy, no matter what, is because her head is Jesus Christ. And he is the holy one. Right? He doesn't stop being holy because I'm not holy. What happens is I get actually separated from him if I'm not holy. I might be a member of the visible body, but I won't be invisibly connected if I'm in grave sin. So I'm the one who's disconnected myself. Right? I haven't, that's why my sin doesn't stain the church in herself, just in the eyes of human beings. Right, so the church is holy because God is her author, because Christ founded her, and gave her the Holy Spirit to be her soul and to give her um, charity into all the members. And we'll talk, it's above all the Eucharist that um, sanctifies us. Because whenever we receive the Eucharist, we're receiving Jesus, the Holy One, and the one who has loved us to death. And he's feeding us with his love week by week. But again, I have to be cooperating for that to grow more. I said the church is holy through the Holy Spirit and, and through um, the sacraments that give supernatural life. The church is holy through her teaching, through her scriptures, right, through her faith, through her hope, and through her saints. Right? So the church is holy also because there are many saints who have lived the life of the church to the full, or at least um, in different degrees. And so the chief, after Jesus, would be Mary. So the church is holy because um, Mary is um, a kind of model of what the church is called to be in every time. And then the church is holy because there are means of forgiveness. Right? The church is holy even though we sin because in the church there's the sacrament of penance or confession. Um, and even before that, baptism. Questions on that? So yes, the whole church, um, with the exception of Mary, is in need of conversion and purification. So the church is holy not by being a collection of the immaculate. <laughs> it's obvious that the church is not that. Um, the church is holy because she has the means to purify us sinful human beings. Basically, we're out of time. Um, let's say, maybe I'll start. Any questions on that? On the holiness? So that can be a stumbling block. I mean, it's a huge stumbling block for people who are outside the church, especially reading about you know, sexual abuse by clergy. But again, we'd answer all of those things in the way we said. The church doesn't ever teach that. And, um, that all sin goes against everything that the church is. It goes against, above all, the example of her founder, right, Jesus. It goes against the power given to us in the sacraments. It goes against the example of the saints and the teaching of Jesus in the scriptures. All right, next time we'll look at the, um, what does it mean that the church is Catholic? The simple answer is Catholic means in the whole world. And so this, again, is a beautiful mark of the church. How do I know what the true church is? It shouldn't have a name like, um, sorry, Russian or Greek or, or something like that. It should have the name Catholic in the whole world. 
Uh, and it shouldn't have the name of a particular human being, like the Lutheran or something like that. Because Jesus founded the church to be in the whole world, to be his bride, until the end of time. Leave it there for today. And we'll continue next week with this topic of the church. And we'll look at Catholic and apostolic. And then we'll look at the teaching authority of the church. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for having founded a church and called us to be members of it. May we come to ever greater communion in your, with your life in your church. We ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, so she's the mother of the church in this sense, that she's the mother of Jesus, she's the head of the church, and also that she's the model of the church. She's the mother of all members of the church in the sense that she's our mother too, because Jesus, at the, when he was dying on the cross, he said, woman, behold your son. And so we could think that we're among the sons and daughters that he made Mary. So in that sense, Mary's the, the mother of all the members of the church. But she's not the mother of the church in the same sense that Jesus is the head of the church. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah.
uh, has asked me about something similar. And yes, usually Protestant churches sometimes are a lot better about this than we are. I mean, hey, it, it's, uh, it, it's a personal, I don't want to hold you up to the time you got but it, it definitely, I like this because it, it's a personal, yeah. a personal Yeah, and you need to absolutely that. So my advice would be to ask Father Popus and Monsignor Friar about um, what are the possibilities in this area. And, and so, yeah, you could, I mean, Different churches in the area could also have it, say the Rock Church, or, but I don't know what those programs are. So I think the best thing is to reach out to pastors, pastors meaning the, the priests, to see what programs they know of that could be right fit for you. And if, it doesn't meet, if you go to one and it doesn't meet your needs, don't feel like you have to stay there, find one that's better. Sure. Yeah. All right, thank you. Sorry, that wasn't. It's not good. Okay. Thank you. 